Good morning, church. Oh, you may be seated. Um, there you go. Now, there are still like three of you up. Um, know how some of us need direction, right? Uh, we're actually going to talk about this morning. If you've got a Bible, turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 there uh, together this mo- morning. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, abused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So if you've been with us for the last few weeks, really over the last month, as we read this, if you're like me, you're like, man, this all sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Uh, Paul's using a lot of language he's already used up to this point. He's talking about death. He's talking about slavery. He's He's talking about God and righteousness. He's talking about bearing fruit, even, which we have looked at over the last couple of weeks. All of this, we kind of get to this point in Romans, and it's like, okay, Paul, we get it. You're just kind of repeating yourself over and over again, it can feel like to us. But Paul wants to make a very specific point this morning. And the reason it sounds so f- similar is because he's using a lot of the same language, and yet his focus is slightly different. Last week, we talked about dying to sin, and today he wants to talk to us about dying to the law. And that may not seem very different at the start, but there's a huge difference there. Uh, There's a huge difference because while we may not feel like it, and when we look at other people around us, we definitely don't always see it, I do believe that we are all driven, responsible people on some level. Ed talked about this last week. He, he, he talked about the passions of our life and how we have things that when we get passionate about them, when we see great worth in them, we are willing to spend a lot of time on them. I felt personally attacked when he talked about working on a golf swing um, because that's mine. I can watch hours and hours of videos talking about golf swings and, and, and that sort of thing. We all, once we find that thing that we love, once we find that thing that we say, this gives me great pleasure, great joy, great purpose, I find great meaning here, we will pour ourselves into that. And you think, well, obviously you've never met my teenager, right? No, that's not the case. 
It's not the case because even the people that we look at and we say, we don't really know if that particular person is that driven, that responsible. Well, what, we, what do we normally say as we talk about that person? It's, well, they just need to find their passion in life, right? We believe that everybody has a particular passion in life. And if they can just find that passion, they will find in themselves what we all have found at different points, that we can be and are driven, responsible people that can care deeply about something as long as it matters greatly to us. Some of us find this easier than others. For some of us, it's just, just the thought of wanting to be a driven, responsible person, be seen as that, be known as that, is enough for us that no matter what it is that's given to us, we will make sure we do it and we do it well and we will pour ourselves into it. For others of us, it is so specific that we can go almost our entire life. We may even go our entire life without finding that particular thing, but it's there. We just have to find it. And so it's because of this idea, this, this idea that somewhere inside of all of us, that when we find that thing that matters most, we will go for it. We will make plans on how to get it. We will lay out our life. We will sell what we have. We will die to what we need to so that we can have the pearl of great price to us. And so it's this point in Paul laying out his entire landscape of what the gospel is and what it does and what it looks like as we receive it. He says, if you've gotten to this point in the process of receiving the gospel, you have found that purpose. If you have gotten to this point in hearing Paul's explanation of what the gospel is and you're like, yes, that sounds amazing. I agree. I want that. You are at that place where you have finally found your passion. You have found the thing you want to live for. He says this at the very end of chapter 6 that we saw last week. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life. That's something we all want, isn't it? That's something we're striving for. That's something to be driven about, and we will be as responsible as we need to be in order to make sure we get this life that is worth dying for. Paul says you've now found eternal life in Christ Jesus. You've died to sin. Paul says, and now because you found this passion of your life, I know exactly where you're going to go with it. He knows that if we hear that we need to die to sin, we think, we interpret that as stop doing what you want to do and start doing what you don't want to do. You've died to sin. You've died to the passions that have ruled you. you. You've died to these things that were killing you, but you liked doing them. That's why you did them, right? And so we think, well, I need to stop doing what I want to do, and I need to figure out how to do what I don't want to do. We, can, we actually feel exactly like George Costanza, sitting in the booth with his friend Jerry, complaining about how every decision in his life has been wrong, and Jerry jokingly says to him, if every inclination you've ever had has been wronged, then the opposite must be right. And George says, that's right, so I'm going to do the opposite. We can feel that way. 
Every inclination up to this point has been wrong, and so I need to do the opposite. You see, when we die to sin and we say, I've found eternal life in Jesus Christ, and it's something that is so good, and I'm so passionate about it, and I want it more than anything else, and I'm willing to do whatever I have to do in order to get it, the thing that we often think we need most right away is more direction. If I can just be given a rule for my life, that in every situation I can apply it blindly, I'll be good to go. Because why? Because I know I want this so badly. If I can just know that I need to do the opposite of what my knee-jerk reaction is, I think I'll be good. This is exactly what we think we need most in our life, isn't it? And the good news is, God has given us just that thing. He has given us his word. What's more, it's not just his word. He's given us commandments. Oftentimes, we go to, back in the Old Testament, 10 commandments. Did you know that there are a whole lot more than that? Over 600 commandments. In the Old Testament, 600 commandments that are a rule for life of how to do the opposite of the thing you want to do in every situation of life. How great is that? We think we need more direction. Guess what? God has given us more direction. You have all the direction you need in order to do the things you don't want to do. Isn't that great? And so we say, I just need to read them. I just need to study them. I need to take them more seriously. I need to memorize them, recite them. I need to do them. And if I can do that, I will have found this eternal life that I want so badly. I need so desperately. But the truth of the gospel is a truth that we don't like, and it's one that Paul knows all too well. The truth of the gospel is that the gospel is not as black and white as we want it to be. Living with God is not as black and white as we want to think it is. We love things to be black and white, right? Right and wrong. Why? Because it's easy. Because when things are black and white, you know exactly what to do and what not to do. And so in this situation, I know to do this all of the time. And in that situation, I know to do that all the time. But life is way more complex than that, right? And the fact of the matter is life with God is way more than complex than regular life even is. The gospel talks about the scripture all the time, talks about things that are diametrically opposed in the same breath, in the same sentence. And we're left scratching our head like, how in the world does that even happen? What does that even look like? It talks about things being held together like grace and truth. How do those two things survive in the same room with one another? They can't. It talks about holiness and love. It talks about freedom and obedience. If you figured out how to, in your daily life, walk in freedom and obedience at the same time, talk to me after church because I have no idea. How can you be free 
and be obeying someone at the same time. These are things that when left to us are mutually exclusive in our world. And yet we can go through the list of things that scripture talks about that are diametrically opposed to one another and yet are held together in tension in Jesus Christ. And we can say we need all of those. Who doesn't need both grace and truth at the same time, right? Who doesn't need freedom and obedience, we need these things so desperately. But what the gospel is clear about over and over again is that we can only have them with Jesus and through him. See, God is so much more beautiful and complex than just do it or don't do it. It's not simply about direction. It's not simply about God saying, now that you take this seriously, figure out in each situation what you should do or don't do. God is greater than that. He's deeper than that. He's more beautiful than that. And when we think that the greatest thing that we need in our life is just simply direction, a set of rules or a rule of life, just do what you don't want to do, we are missing God completely. Paul says more direction isn't what you need. He says there, we're going to jump down to Romans uh, chapter 7 and verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We, we talked a few weeks ago, uh, and, and we've talked several times about this point, uh, about what the law does and asking the question all the time, why was the law given? Well, we've set up to this point, and what Paul's been saying is the law was given to shine a light on sin so that we would know what sin is, we would know what it looks like, and so we would know our need for a Savior. But it's here at this point, in chapter 7, verse 5, that Paul takes it a step further, and he says, okay, if you've gotten to this point with me, you're ready for the full truth. Because before you would have just, you would have told me to stop talking, you would have thrown me out, you would have been like, no, I don't believe the law is that way. He says the law, if you are convinced that it shows you what sin is and what's more, it can't save you from sin, now you need to know what it really does. That if you have not died to the law in the way that you need to, the law forces you to sin. There it is. I said it. The law doesn't just show sin, it leads to sin. If we have not died in the way we need to, Paul says, knowing what the right thing to do is, is going to actually lead you to do the wrong thing. Anytime there's a basketball game on in our house... Um, on the TV, uh, my son Wesley asks um, two questions. Uh, he's, he's ultra competitive. He gets that from me. And so Wesley, said, Wesley asked me what two teams are playing. And so I always tell him. And he says, Dad, which team are you rooting for? And so I tell him. And I think probably, this is my guess, probably normal kids would say, Dad, what team are you rooting for? So they know what team to root for. Not my son. My son finds out which team I'm rooting for so he can vehemently root for the other team. I had to sit down with Wesley and tell him the other day that nothing would ever keep me from loving him, but if he doesn't stop rooting against Kentucky, I'm going to kick him out of our house. 
my son is contrary just to be contrary. Hannah says he gets it from me. I don't agree with her. That's not me being contrary. (laughs) This is such a big deal that the other kids in our family have seen this. We were, uh, we were driving in the car um, a few weeks ago, and uh, Hannah had just had it with all the potty talk going on. And so she was telling the kids that she was tired of hearing all of these things, and, that, and so she like, starts like saying these words. And Wesley can't help himself by having heard the words to start saying the words back to her. And we kept telling Wesley, stop saying it, you're going to get in trouble. Stop saying it, you're going to get in trouble. Stop saying it, you're going to get in trouble. Guess what? Wesley got in trouble. And so it was later that night, we were cleaning up in uh, Eden's room, and Eden likes to draw a lot of things, and so there's a stack of papers, and in the stack of papers, Hannah finds this paper. Hannah comes out, and she says, Eden, what's this? And Eden says, well, it's a list of words we're not supposed to say. And Hannah goes, what's all the X's? And she goes, that means we're not supposed to say. And she goes, what were you doing with this? And Eden goes, I was going to teach Wesley the words we're not supposed to say. I'm not saying, like, I know what you guys are thinking, Um, and no, I love all of my kids the same, Um, but uh, this is amazing. Eden's first inclination, teach Wesley what not to say. We had to sit down with her, and we had to explain that Wesley is the type of person that it's better for him to not know it's an option, because if he knows it's an option, and what's more, if he knows he's not supposed to do it, that's exactly the thing he's going to want to do. This is also a great uh, lesson in how phonics is not a great way to teach your children how to spell. (laughs) Here's the bad news. We like to all think we're Eden. And And so we say the thing that we need is more information, more rules, more direction. The bad news is we're all Wesley. And that's bad news for all of us because Wesley's a handful We have this rebellious streak in us. And by knowing the law, we then want to do the opposite. See, we're, we're going to come to something in the law that we don't agree with. We're going to come to something that we don't see it that way, or we don't think it maybe necessarily applies in this situation, or we don't know how it applies in this situation. What's more is we're going to come to a place in our life where we just feel bored. And what's more exciting than doing the thing you're not supposed to do? So simply having direction in your life is actually going to lead you in the wrong direction. We say, okay, we get that. But what if, what if, though, we get really serious about it? Because, I mean, that makes sense, right? It, 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 it makes sense that we, that knowing uh, the right thing to do, we'll, we'll still want to do the wrong thing and stuff like that. But you're not taking into account, perhaps, like my level of commitment, we like to tell ourselves. Like, I know that other people do that, but I, I, I've seen what I need. I, I've seen the reality of this thing. I, I, I've seen how, how messed up my life is without it. And so 
if, if maybe, like, okay, if the law can only give me 50%, what if I do the other 50%? So, so like, what, what, what if we... What, what if we thought, like, maybe, maybe the thing we need isn't just more direction. Maybe the thing we need also is more commitment. What if I committed myself in a different way, in a deeper way, in a greater way to this? Like, I, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Just go with me here. What if I saw it like a marriage? And, and, and so what if I said, like, at this point in time, I've made a commitment. I, I, I've seen what else is out there. It's not good. I know this is better. And so now at this point, there's nothing else. Maybe then we can make it work. If I just really lock in and be about this and only this, and Paul says again, it won't work because it's a bad match. You and the law, and you and the law exclusively, you're not right for each other, Paul says. Because it wasn't made for you. It's kind of like watching um, a reality TV uh, romance show. And watching people kind of thrown into this like pressure cooker, like expecting to like find like the one and everything like that. And the whole entire time you're watching it because it's a train wreck and yet the people in the train wreck don't realize they're in a train wreck, right? The whole time you're watching it and they're talking about how this person's the one and they just, you ha- they have a connection with, with this person that they've never had with anybody else. You're like, yeah, no, I don't think so because they're crazy and I think you are too. And so, I mean, maybe that works, but I, I doubt it works and stuff. And so you're just like, this is not going to go anywhere. Well, and we all know this. I mean, I, okay, you guys are going to have to believe me on this part because I did not do research here. But according to someone's research less than a year ago, you might be surprised to find out. That in 17 seasons of The Bachelorette, three couples are still married. It might shock you that in 25 seasons of The Bachelor, one couple is still married. And probably maybe the most shocking of all is that in three seasons of Temptation Island, zero couples are still married. (laughs) I was surprised. Because, I mean, the title just says true love, like right all over it, right? I mean, that's not how you find true love. That's not people that have been made for you. That's not how you figure out whether or not you're compatible. These shows are not made to actually end up in a lifelong commitment to people. These shows are made to make money. From those of us who are bored. Paul says the law will not work because it takes the thing you want the most and it uses it against you. So ask yourself, what do you want to be? What are you hoping to be? A good host? Someone that's known as hospitable? A prayer warrior? A discerning leader? Growing up in the um, home of a pastor, I, uh, I had a lot of access and interaction with um, 
men and women who were in ministry, they would come to our church, they would speak, all, all those sorts of things. And usually a lot of times those people would like, you know, stay with us in our house. And so you would kind of get to know them, see them. And um, I don't know at what point or even why the idea of when people would just describe people as like being a godly man, like that just like, that, that, that hits something in me. And it's like, man, I would, I would love to be like known that way, be that way, just be a person that's all about God. And, 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 and being, being around these people, um, one of the things that uh, struck me, like what I could see for, to me, like what I could see the common theme was with these people that you would like quote unquote say like that's a godly person was they took knowing God and knowing about God and particularly like reading things about God very seriously. And so in my mind, when it came to commitment, that was the thing of what it meant and what it looked like. Do you know what one of the most dangerous places in the world for a young new believer is? I'll tell you. It is the book table at summer camp. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. Uh, I'll explain it real quick. Uh, at, at summer camps, at Christian summer camps, since the beginning of time, at every one of them, there is a book table. And this table is usually, like, whatever room, like, if it's, if, if it's just a meeting hall or whatever, whatever room uh, that people are meeting in, the book table is usually at, like, the back of the room or just outside in the lobby. And, um, and if you're still, like, I'm, I'm not really sure what it is. If you've ever been to Disney World and you know that, like, when you ride the ride, you get off the ride and then you have to walk through the gift shop about that ride, that's the book table at a family camp, Okay has all this stuff that because you've just experienced it all, you're like, I really want to buy all of this stuff. The reason why the book table at family camp is one of the most dangerous places for a young believer is because before getting to the book table, just 10 minutes before, you had been so convicted by whatever message that you had heard about how wrong you were and how much you needed Jesus that you'd gone down to the altar and you had said, this is going to be the time, this is the one that sticks. And because you were so sure of how much you needed Christ, that you... You were crying, there was hugging, I mean, and because you're like, this is the one, this is the time that it actually happens. You even, you even wrote in that first page of your Bible, today's the day I got saved and stuff like that, because you're like, this is going to be the thing, this is the one. And so after having that amazing experience and, and committing yourself again, and you're saying, okay, because this is the one that's going to stick, I need to really commit, I really need to get serious, you walk over to the book table, and guess what? You need everything that's there. You start looking at all the books, and you're like, oh, man, that sounds good. Oh, man, I've never heard about that. Oh, I've, I've never even considered this. I could use that in my life. And you, before you know it, you have a stack. And the really dangerous thing about the book table at summer camp is that it is literally the only place in the world where your parents will buy you everything you want. And so no, you don't just walk out of there with like one book. You walk out of there with six books. And you've got a stack. And you say, this is the thing. This is the thing that shows how committed I am. This is the thing that is going to help me get deeper in a life with Jesus. And so you go back to your room that night and you grab the first book and you open it up and you read the first chapter and it's just incredible. It's so amazing. Everything you're reading is so fresh and it's so new. And, and, and so you have to set the book down and you're like, I, I just got to pray about this. I got to think about this. I am so thankful for what God's doing in my life and all the new things. Where 20 minutes before getting to that book table, you were so far from Jesus, you wanted nothing to do with him. And now 20 minutes later, you're a Christian scholar. 
And so you put the book down and you think about it and, and you're like, okay, I'm going to pick this up tomorrow. And I'm just, I'm so excited to dig in deeper into what it looks like and means to be living with God. And guess what? You sleep in the next day and so you're not able to, you don't get up as early as you thought you would to pray and do your devotions and read the book that you got. And the day gets busy and stuff like that. And before you know it, like you, you just don't read the book that day. But that's okay because the stack's still there. And it's just a reminder of this amazing thing that God has done and that God is doing in your life and how committed you are to this new thing. Because it's real. Why? Because you have six books and not two. But days and weeks go on and you don't read the books. And so what happens is this thing that started out as a great reminder, actually a great tool, this, this amazing thing that was going to show your level of commitment and then help you be more committed, it's turned into this reminder of how you haven't measured up, of how you failed, of how you're not what you thought you were going to be and you're not committed on the level you hoped you were this time. And every time you walk into your room and you see that stack of books, it makes you feel like garbage. And you start to question yourself, was it real? But what's more, is God as disappointed with me as I am with myself? We all have a stack of books in our life. It may not be a literal stack of books. But whatever it is that you want to be, that you're hoping to be, whether it's a good parent, a good spouse, a godly person, a prayer warrior, whatever the, the title is that means so much to you in your life, there is a stack of books that you've said, this right here is going to show my level of commitment. And what was once this beautiful thing about what God was doing in your life is now at this point something that beats you down and reminds you how you don't measure up. And maybe you're not as committed as you thought you were. It doesn't matter how much you commit yourself to the law, whatever that law is. But even the law of Moses, something as good as the law of Moses, Paul is saying, it doesn't matter how much you commit yourself to it, it is going to be a bad spouse to you. It's reminders that it gives you when you wake up in the morning or how you screwed up yesterday. The little notes it's leaving you on the mirror in the bathroom or about how you didn't get it right and you need to try harder today. The text messages it sends you through the day are not about how you're good enough, how you're enough, and how much you're loved. They're about all the things that you haven't done yet, and you're probably not going to be able to do them later. The law of your life will keep showing you time and time again simply how short you fall, not how far you've come. It will keep asking for more no matter how much you do, it will never tell you well done, or it's okay, you'll get it next time. And what's more is it leaves you to figure it out. It leaves you to make yourself better. Ultimately, it leaves you alone. The law of life doesn't care if you live or die, because it can't. It's not the reason it was given. 
But we think if we just commit ourselves to it more, if we just try harder, if we just do better, that will get it done. But it doesn't work, and so we get beat down. We get frustrated that others aren't as committed as we are. We get tired of giving everything and getting nothing. And so we feel abused, jaded, dead inside. And we're tired of looking at that stack of books, looking back at us and just telling us all the ways we don't measure up. And so at some point we say, look, I get it. I know the wages of sin is death. But you know what? At least over there, I was accepted for who I am and I didn't feel like garbage all the time. And so when we finally had enough, we throw the stack of books out and we run back into the arms of sin because we haven't died to the law. If we are not willing to die to the law at the same time that we die to sin, we're just going to end up running back to sin because law feels, being under a law that you can't live up to feels worse than dying because of the sin in your life. And we've all seen that. There, I don't believe that there is a Christian or someone trying to walk with Jesus or someone trying to figure out that has not experienced this very thing where we want to be dead to sin, we want to be done with it, we want to move on, and so we say, how can I make myself better? What can I do? Give me direction. If I commit myself more, and yet it just doesn't work out, and we just find ourselves in the cycle over and over again where we go back to the thing we don't want to go back to, but man, I just can't help but feel I'm more judged over here than I was over there. Paul is pleading with us to not commit ourselves to something that isn't committed to us. He says again in Romans 7 verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh... The word here he uses is sarks, and um, the way that Paul uses that particular term over and over again is the same way that John uses uh, the term in the world uh, throughout his writings. And so what Paul, what Paul is essentially saying here is that we, we, while we were living as people in the world, as people that, that didn't know, as he made the case way back in chapter 1, people that didn't acknowledge that God was real or that he existed, while we were living that way, we gave ourselves to the law. It's great that you've died to sin, but you also have to die to the way that you were trying to make yourself better. You also have to give up this idea that the thing you need in your life the most is either more direction or just more commitment on your part. It's at this point you're like, but then I don't know what to do. So what do I do with that? Because it just kind of sounds like, I don't know, floating out in space, right? The great thing is, is Paul gets very practical very quickly. And it's a little difficult to see, but hopefully we can flesh it out. He says there in verse 6, he says, But now, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. 
And he doesn't just mean any spirit. He doesn't just mean it's unwritten rules and make up your own. He's saying God's spirit. The spirit of Jesus Christ. The spirit that Christ himself had. And so what Paul is saying is, the thing that you do now, the thing that you really need, is not the thing that you would have thought of. It's not the thing that you think is going to get a lot done. Because we think, okay, at this point, it's time for me to you know, lace up my boots and get to work. Right, give me direction. Give, I'll commit to it. Let's just get stuff done. And Paul says, there's a new way. There's a way of the Spirit. And what does that look like? What is the thing that you and me really need? We need worship. What we need more than anything in our life is worship. And if you're like me, the first moment that you come across this, your thought is, worship's the thing you get to do when everything else has been done. Get your chores done so you can do the fun thing. It's kind of like telling our kids, you get to play video games when you've cleaned up your room. That's worship. Do the hard stuff. Do the things that are actually going to make a difference. Go make a difference in the world, and then you get to come back and you get to worship. That's not true. That is the old written code, and it is not the new way of the Spirit. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it. Moved by who God is and what he has done for you. Worship is all about knowing and experiencing a God that wants to know you. Greater direction and greater commitment are not going to change your heart. But knowing God will transform everything about you. The thing you need is to know him. To experience him, to love him, to, to hear from him, to, to think about what he has done. And, and if this sounds too simple, if this sounds too, I don't know, just pie in the sky kind of thinking of, hey, oh, hey guys, don't worry about doing good stuff. Don't, you know, let's, just, let's just like sing to Jesus, you know, let's hold hands with him and, and stuff like that. All you need to do and think about is Israel in the book of Exodus. When God sends Moses back to deliver Israel from bondage, he does so that they can be free. But does he do it simply so that they can be free? No. What does Moses tell Pharaoh? Tell, what does God tell Moses to tell Pharaoh? He says, let my people go. So what? So that they may worship me. We have been set free from direction and commitment so we can stop thinking about the things we haven't done or how we haven't lived up to our own expectations or other people's expectations, and we can focus on what God has done. And you see this lived out in the life of Israel because at the moment that they cross the Red Sea, 
At the moment that God closes the Red Sea on Pharaoh and all of his writers, the very first thing that is recorded is a song of Moses and a song of Miriam. And he says there in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Moses says, I will sing to the Lord for his triumph gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And it's not even like they sing the song, and then they show up on Mount Sinai, and then they get the law. They go through other stuff with God before they even get to God giving them direction and asking for them to commit themselves to those things. What God knows you and I need and what he wants for us to have long before we get to going and buying that stack of books and putting it on our shelf and saying, this is how I'm going to get deeper, is to know him and to know who he is and what he is about and how much we are loved. And Paul says, you've died to sin, that's great, but die to the other extreme of the law because the law doesn't love you like God does. And if you run to the law, you're just going to then end up back in sin because you're going to get beat down. And I think God is looking at so many of us today and he says, you're running after something that doesn't love you like I do. He's given the law because he loves us, but he wants us to know that he loves us before we start applying the law to our life. He wants us to know the spirit in which it's been given. The law is basically this thing that God says, this is what it looks like to be in relationship with me. Once we're like, we want to be in relationship with you. And yet, how many times in our prayer life, how many times coming to church, how many times that we go to God is everything in our mind about how we are not measuring up? About the things we haven't done and how sorry we are for the ways we've let him down. And we're telling him and we're telling ourselves, I promise I'll be more committed next time. I'll do better tomorrow. And all God wants you to do, all you need to do is focus on him and what he has done and worship him for that. Let it go. Throw the books out of your life, but don't run back to sin. Run to the God who has already taken care of it for you. Allow him to show you his heart and change your heart through that. The direction and the commitment, they come as you grow in love with the God and the only one who knows how to grow you in love for himself and for his word and for his eternal life. The thing with how we so often run after and what Paul's saying, the thing with the law and why we're so attracted to it, is that it keeps us at the center of the story. Those things we desperately want to be, well, then they say something about us, not him. But the fact of the matter is, the hero of this story is Jesus Christ and what he has done and who he is. And the only way, Paul says, that this goes anywhere is if you give up this idea. It's great. It, it is so wonderful that you've seen the errors of the ways of sin. But you also need to see how bad it is for you to stay locked in in an exclusive relationship with the law. 
we're going to take communion as we respond and worship this morning. And, and I'm going to do something I've never done before, and it's probably the wrong thing to do, but hey, let's just go for it, right? I'm going to tell you how to take communion. So I think so often as we come and we have this moment with Christ, we are so overwhelmed with thinking about the very things that we have not done. That we come and we take the body and the blood of Jesus and we are racked with guilt of how we have not been living up. We have let ourselves down and we have let God down. We are carrying that stack of books with us everywhere we go. And that's okay, that's natural. But this morning as you come forward, you can carry those stack of books, but when you reach out and you take the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, you're letting go of all of those things that show your commitment and show your growth and give you direction. And what you're doing is you're saying, all I need, all I want is the body of Christ. And to worship him in a new way of the spirit. Not based on what I've done or where I'm at, but who he is and what he's done. And once you take those two things, that's all you think about. As you sing, as you pray, the thing that overwhelms you is who God is. And how much he loves you. And you begin to let that shape your life rather than the direction and commitment that we think we so often need to supply ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we ask for your grace. Grace, Lord, to let go of our normal habits of how we worship you, of how we respond to you, of, of how we interact and we talk to you. Father, would you direct us in your spirit? Lord, so often this is a time that we ask for you to show us who we are. And Lord, we definitely want you to do that. But Heavenly Father, Lord, that is, personally, that is often where my mind goes to. And it takes me so long to just focus on you. Would you, would you make a space for us this morning that we would be people who would take this opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth? Would we see the amazing love that has been poured out for us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Would we weep because we know that we are not worth it and yet you are so glorious? Would simply the knowledge of who we are, where we've been, just deepen our affection and admiration for who you are and what you've done. Heavenly Father, would you shape us through the power of your Holy Spirit simply by knowing you. Simply by loving you. simply by worshiping your holy name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.